I just want to give special shout outs to Leslie, Linda, and Tracy. Thank you so much for the support. You're helping keep the show going, help keeping me caffeinated, and I really appreciate you. So thank you very much. In 1977, the woman who inherited the Brock's candy fortune vanished. Inconsistent stories, tales of horse thievery, and a lot of hinky stuff over the last 44 years has left this one an enduring unsolved mystery. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast app or over on YouTube. This case is my most recommended topic, thanks to Kelly, who has recommended it multiple times. If you have a case you want to suggest for me to add to my ever-growing list, the best way to do that to be sure I get it onto the spreadsheet is to either at me on Twitter or email crimelinespodcast at gmail.com. Keeping up with comments on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, wherever else is just not my strong suit. This case, the one of Helen Brock, is one I attempted to cover back on my old podcast, but I got so wrapped up in and frankly confused by the horse-related drama and crimes that I scrapped it without even writing a single word. But this time around, I pushed as much of that into the background as I could, so we're just going to focus on the disappearance of Helen Brock and only deal with the other crimes as they are relevant and only surface level. But even with focusing this case down, this is going to be a two-parter. I usually would just release an episode this length as an extra-long episode, but I actually need a little more time to finish the last bit since there is a lot there. But instead of waiting a week to release part two, I will actually release it a couple days after this one, Wednesday or Thursday, whenever I get it done. But then I won't have an episode on Monday. So we'll have two episodes this week. We had two last week, and then we're going to have a week off. So that's enough on the scheduling notes. Let's get into the case. Helen Brock was born Helen Voorhees in November 1911. She grew up with her brother Charles on a farm. Their father worked for the railroad. He worked in the coal fields. He did just the general blue-collar work available at the time. Figuring that Helen would later become one of the wealthiest women in America, Helen was born to extremely humble circumstances. And those circumstances remained humble for the first 38 years of her life. Helen married her high school boyfriend in 1928 when she was 17 years old, and it really looked like Helen was going to be the typical small-town girl who married young and never left her hometown. But at the age of 21, Helen divorced her husband, and she stayed in the area working entry-level jobs until the late 1940s. As Helen was nearing 40 years old, she was ready for a change. She had no career or kids tethering her to Ohio, so she moved to the Florida coast, living in the Miami area. 
Her work in Florida wasn't much different than what she did in Ohio, just with better ocean views. In 1950, 38-year-old Helen was working at a country club as a hat check girl when she met a handsome older man. He asked her out for drinks, and she said yes. The he in this scenario was 60-year-old Frank Brock. He, his father, and his brother owned and operated E.J. Brock and Sons Candy Company, now known just as Brock's, and it is one of the most famous candy companies in the U.S. And in my most controversial take on this podcast yet, I have to say I love their candy corn. The Autumn Mix is my favorite of their products, and I do understand if this stance, this pro-candy corn stance, means that you need to unsubscribe now. Thank you for your support up to this point. So Helen was swept up by this charming and wealthy man who was actually a charming and wealthy married man. June Brock was actually Frank's second wife. He was married to his first wife for 16 years, and he was around his 16-year anniversary with June when he met Helen. 16 years was apparently the expiration date on Frank's affection, I guess. When Frank asked Helen out for drinks, he and June were on the brink of divorce. But the brink of divorce isn't the same thing as being divorced. So when June found out about Helen, she sued her for alienation of affection. She asked for $100,000, which is roughly a million dollars in today's money, claiming that Helen was a man-stealer. The case did settle out of court in November 1950, and Frank and June finalized their divorce. In 1951, Helen and Frank married. Helen was turning 40, and for the first time in her life, she was not just financially comfortable, but she was literally a multimillionaire. And Helen used some of that newfound wealth to help buy her parents a nice house in Ohio, where she would visit whenever she could. But Frank and Helen mostly split their time between a mansion in Glenview, Illinois, which is north of Chicago, and a penthouse condo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Helen seemed to really love Florida the most, but Frank still had business in Chicago, particularly after his father died and he and his brother inherited the company. In 1966, Frank was ready to retire. His brother had died the year before, and his own health was failing. When the company sold, Frank practically doubled his fortune. The American Home Products Corp. bought it for $136 million, which would be roughly a billion dollars in today's money. Frank and Helen lived a quiet life together in his final years, and in 1970, Frank died. After this state was settled, because Frank did have two grown children from his first marriage, after it was settled, Helen was left a very wealthy widow at 58 years old. Her share of the estate was estimated to be between 30 and $50 million in 1970s money. And Helen continued to split her time between the Glenview Mansion and the penthouse she and Frank rented from friends in Florida. Helen was a very social person. She is occasionally described as a recluse, but I'm not sure why. I literally looked up the definition of recluse thinking, 
have I been using it wrong my entire life? But no, I have the definition right. I just think people have captured Helen incorrectly. She regularly went out. She loved ballroom dancing, one of her favorite things. She spent a few hours every day talking to friends on the phone. She had people over for coffee. She went out to dinner parties. She traveled. The one thing Helen didn't do was move in the Chicago society circles you'd expect for someone as wealthy as she was. Maybe that's why people think Helen was practically a shut-in. You wouldn't find her picture in the paper having been at the latest gala or spotted in a hot spot around town. But that doesn't mean she didn't have a full and active social life. Some of Helen's friends were people she met through animal welfare charities. She loved animals and donated a lot of money to various projects and organizations. If you ever make it to the Lincoln Zoo in Chicago, you will see that the primate house is named after Helen. Helen gave away a lot of money, but she also spent some of it on luxury items. In contrast to the money she donated to animal rights groups, she did own fur coats. She also liked luxury cars, custom-painted to be candy colors matching Brock's candy. She had lavender, red, and pink cars in all of the makes you would expect. Cadillac, Rolls-Royce, Lincoln. So Helen spent some money. She gave some of it away. She seemed a little eccentric to people, but for the most part, she kept her feet firmly planted on the ground. Even when she met a charming younger man named Richard Bailey. The two met in 1973 or 74 when Helen was 62 and Richard was 44. The two had both grown up poor and found wealth as adults, so that was something they related to each other with. Helen married into her money, but Richard Bailey's talent was taking other people's money. He initially got started as a driving instructor in St. Louis, which seems innocent enough. But then he realized... He could make more money if the rich women he was teaching to drive took a long time to learn. So he dragged out the lessons until they would finally pull the plug, some of them unable to even pass the driving test. Richard then moved to Chicago, and there are some reports that he went there because of the complaints about his driving lessons, and they were escalating and he just needed to get out of town. But for whatever reason Richard ended up in Chicago, he did, and he decided to get into the horse business. Whether we're talking breeding or racing, I'm not entirely sure what it started with, but the important part here is that Richard got scammed in a horse sale, and then he realized, through that scam, how much money there was to be made. And it's a pretty simple scam, to be honest. You buy a horse for its actual value, and then you sell it for a lot more money to someone who has the money, but not the knowledge. The horses are racehorses, so you're promising your client that they're winners, or they come from some great horse racing line and can be bred for a fee, or whatever you have to say to convince them that the horse will make more money than it cost. So you're pocketing a pretty large sum up front with this markup sale. 
But then you know a guy who has a stable your client can board the horse at. And then you know a guy who can train the horse. And you're just skimming a little off the top in all of these transactions going forward. So you make money up front and you keep the money coming in. In a lot of cases, these are groups of people running the scam. So the trainer, the stable owner, they're generally in on the scheme to some degree. Helen Brock was only one of a number of wealthy single women, often widows, who Richard Bailey would charm and then set them up to buy some horses. He admitted to whining and dining these women to set up a deal, but that's a very benign way of describing what he did. Richard was making all of this money, so he appeared to be pretty wealthy himself. Not Helen Brock wealthy, but doing well for himself. He didn't seem like he needed the money, and that also led more people to trust him. The nature of Helen and Richard's relationship is murky. He has characterized their relationship as not a scam and not transactional, but rather a deep romantic connection, and he said they even planned on getting married. Friends of Helen do not believe the relationship was romantic to that degree. Helen liked going out and dancing. She liked having a younger and handsome partner at her side. She thought he was a lot of fun to be around. From the reading I've done, I think Helen would have put their relationship somewhere between platonic and romantic, but not headed to marriage. So we really don't know the true nature of the relationship. Richard does have some cause to exaggerate his love and devotion and feelings for Helen, which we'll see down the road. One of the things Helen and Richard did together was go to horse races. One day in 1975, they were at a race together in Florida, and Helen mentioned she wanted to buy some racehorses. Her late husband had owned some in the past, and she thought it was a good idea to get back into it. Richard said his brother just so happened to deal in that sort of business, so he found two mares for Helen that would cost her $50,000. Helen agreed to the price, unaware that Richard's brother had actually paid a fifth of that. Then she later bought a stallion for $45,000 that cost Richard and or his brother more like $8,500. This was something that attracted people like Richard Bailey and others to these horse scams. There was no Kelly Blue Book to value a horse to let you know what it was worth. The horse was worth what you told the buyer it was worth. Of course, someone could bring in a third-party appraiser to know that they're getting the value they're paying for. But Helen trusted Richard to be that person. He was the one who was supposed to make sure she got what she paid for. Unfortunately, this appears to be a misplaced trust. Helen spent nearly $100,000 on three horses that were worth less than $18,000. She also bought a group of mares, though it is unclear the cost versus value on that, but I think it's safe to say Helen did not get a fair deal. In early 1977, after her horses did win a few purses, but were mostly losing races and money, Helen was starting to catch on to the scam. 
Richard had tried to talk her into buying some more horses, but Helen spent less than an hour at the stables before she left, completely disinterested. She then hired an appraiser to look at the horses she did own. She learned that not only were they not worth as much as she was told they were, the appraiser told her to not even bother training one of the horses because it would be a waste of money. Richard had just recently quoted her $50,000 to train that same horse. And now the third-party appraiser is saying, that's ridiculous. So Helen was catching on, and she complained to people about it. One friend told her that this sounded more than just getting an unfair markup, but an actual crime. They advised her to go to the state's attorney's office and make a complaint. But Helen decided that was a bridge she would cross later. She was getting a little worried about her health as she was aging, and Richard talked her into going to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. They could do a full workup over the course of a few days and then let her know what the concerns were. Richard even pulled some strings with someone he knew there to get her an earlier appointment. Helen indicated to her friend that she would consider filing a complaint, but not until after she got back from Minnesota. So in mid-February 1977, Helen had her physical at the Mayo. On the morning of February 17th, Helen met with the doctor to go over everything and all the tests from the previous days, and she learned she was in great health save for needing to lose a few pounds to help with the circulation in her legs. After this first thing in the morning appointment, Helen went back to the hotel she was staying in, packed her bag, and checked out. It would have been a little before 9 a.m. As she left, she popped into a little boutique shop and bought a few things, leaving her address in Fort Lauderdale and asking that they ship the items there. Helen's plan was to go back to Chicago, unpack, repack, and then fly to Florida. She was in the process of moving out of the penthouse that she had been renting and into a new condo that she had bought. So these little items at the shop were for the new condo. As the clerk was ringing everything up and getting her address, Helen seemed impatient. She made a comment about being in a hurry since her houseman was waiting for her. The word houseman hit the salesperson's ear a little funny because she had never heard that word before. Helen left the store at 10 a.m. on Thursday, February 17th, 1977, and this is the last confirmed sighting of her. And this is confirmed to be Helen, not just because the clerk recognized her picture, but because she paid with a credit card. So this is the documented last time she was seen. So let's fast forward a couple weeks to the evening of March 4th, 1977. Everett Moore, Helen's accountant and financial advisor, got a call from Jack Matlick, who was Helen's houseman. Jack had worked for Helen's late husband, Frank, and then when Frank died, Helen kept him on. 
He didn't live at the Chicago house except to house it when Helen was out of town. He was also a general handyman and a maintenance man. He also acted as a chauffeur at times, and sometimes he was even a bit of a personal assistant to Helen. His job duties were rather broad, so it's kind of hard to place him in a box, but Helen called him her houseman, and so that's what he was. Jack was calling Everett more because he was worried about Helen. He said that a few days after Helen got back from the Mayo Clinic, he dropped her off at the airport to fly to Florida, but then he learned she had never made it there. So you may be thinking, wait, you just said the last time she was seen was in that store, and now we have someone saying she made it home and then to the airport again. You're going to see why this is not considered a confirmed story. Jack told Everett he wanted him to come over to the house so they could discuss where Helen could be, and Everett said he would come the next day, a Saturday. After Jack hung up with Everett, he called Helen's brother, Charles Voorhees, who lived in Ohio. Charles had spoken to Helen on the phone when she was at the Mayo Clinic, but hadn't heard from her after that. Now, that wasn't unusual for them. They would go a month without talking. After confirming that Charles also hadn't heard from Helen recently and didn't know where she was, Jack asked him to come to Chicago to report Helen missing because Jack had tried to go to the Glenview police and they told him only family members could report someone missing. Charles said he would come to Chicago and he booked a flight for Sunday the 6th, two days away. The day after Jack made these calls, Everett Moore did go to the house as promised to see what was going on. Jack said that Helen had come home from the clinic, spent the weekend packing and organizing, and then he dropped her off at the airport around 7 a.m. on Monday, February 21st. Normally, Helen would settle in in Florida, and then Jack would hear from her after a little bit. When he didn't hear anything, he called the old penthouse that she rented, and the building manager said she hadn't been by, even though she was supposed to be moving stuff out. Jack then called some friends who also hadn't heard from her. From all Jack could gather, he couldn't find anyone who heard from her or saw her after he left her at the airport. Jack told Everett that Charles was on his way to report Helen missing, and he had a concern. There was a stack of papers that Jack was sure Helen wouldn't want people to see. In fact, she had always told Jack that if anything happened to her, Jack was to destroy these items. Some were old diaries Helen constantly journaled, and the rest were what is called automatic writing. Helen believed she could communicate with spirits through this automatic writing. With a yellow legal pad and a pen, she would go into a room alone and the spirits would guide her hands. Sometimes she produced something legible, sometimes she did not. However, as a private person, Helen wouldn't have wanted prying eyes on her diaries or her psychic writings. Jack showed the stack of items to Everett and suggested they destroy them. Everett was shocked and said, absolutely not. For one thing, 
they didn't even know if Helen was just off in Florida somewhere, alive and well, and not checking in. In fact, that was Everett's first thought. Helen was independent. She didn't give everyone her itinerary every time she stepped out the front door or even left the state. Usually someone knew where she was because they happened to talk to her. And to Everett, they were just still looking for someone who knew where she was. It seemed hasty for Jack to want to destroy her things just because she didn't call him. What would Helen think when she got back and her stuff was gone? Not long after Everett told Jack to leave the papers alone, a police detective did show up to the house. While they said they would not accept a missing persons report from Jack, Helen was a prominent member of the community, and this detective was doing what you might call a little pre-investigation. Everett told the detective what Jack told him about dropping Helen off and not hearing from her, and the police were basically just going to wait until Charles got to town and reported her missing to start their investigation. So on Sunday, when Charles Voorhees arrived, Jack picked him up at the airport and took him to the mansion rather than straight to the police station. Jack showed Charles the same stack of journals and psychic writings that Everett Moore told him to leave alone. According to both Jack and Charles, there was a note that said to destroy them if anything happened to Helen. It doesn't seem like Everett Moore had seen this note, though. Jack suggested that they do what the note instructed, and he started boxing things up. Charles expressed a vague concern that they didn't know that anything had happened to his sister. And wouldn't Helen be annoyed if they got rid of her stuff? But Jack said that since they were going to the police, the items would be seen by the police and there was a risk of them being leaked to the media. So to protect that leak from happening, Jack wanted to destroy the items. Charles, who didn't look through any of these papers, said, okay. He followed Jack to the furnace room where Jack burned them. In some things that come after that we'll talk about in the next episode on this case, I get the impression Charles is just one of those not terribly curious people, but like I said, we'll get into that later. It was Monday, March 7th, when Charles went to the police to report his sister Helen Brock missing. This was two weeks to the day after Jack dropped her off at the airport. Well, let's say allegedly dropped her off at the airport. And then this is when the investigation, the long, long, repeated, long investigation began. Let's get into some detail on what Jack told the police happened from when he picked Helen up on the 17th after her trip to the Mayo Clinic and when he dropped her off on the 21st for her to go to Florida. And then we'll talk about what the police could prove happened because those turned out to be two very different things. Jack said that he picked Helen up at the airport on Thursday, February 17th at 4 p.m., she was annoyed because he showed up driving a Jeep and not one of her luxury cars. He explained he was running errands before heading to the airport and didn't have a chance to change cars. It took them about an hour to get back to the Glenview Mansion because of the traffic. 
At 5.30 p.m., Jack called his wife to let her know that he would be staying at Helen's house for this weekend. He didn't usually stay there if Helen was home, but she needed help packing and organizing. That same evening, Helen was packing a trunk to put some blankets in storage when a lid shut on her hand, injuring her. She iced it, and Jack offered to take her to the ER to have it checked out, but she declined. The next day, on the 18th, Helen wrote out some checks for expenses that needed to be taken care of before she left for Florida. She then spent the weekend packing until Sunday evening when she went out to dinner. Jack did not recognize the man who picked Helen up for this dinner. While she was out, Richard Bailey called the house and asked to speak with her, but Jack said she was out, and that was about all. Richard said he called because he thought Helen was going to be in Florida on Saturday and was surprised when she hadn't arrived. Helen came home from dinner around midnight, and then early in the morning on Monday, Jack drove Helen to the airport to catch that flight to Florida. Rather than see her to her flight, like he usually did, Jack said he left her at the curb. He said this was 7 a.m., and that was the last he heard from her. Jack was asked about any arguments he had with Helen other than the little snippiness over picking her up in the Jeep. Jack admitted that on Friday, the two argued over a car. Helen had given him the car two years before for his own personal use, and he had recently sold it to pay off a gambling debt. Helen found out, and she was a little angry that he had gotten rid of a gift, but he said she got over it pretty quickly. So that was Jack's story. So now we're going to see how it lines up with what came out over the course of the first year or two of the investigation. First, Jack said Helen arrived back in Chicago from Minnesota, and that's the first part detectives tried to prove and couldn't. In the column saying, yes, Helen made that flight from Rochester, Minnesota, to Chicago, Illinois. Her plane ticket was used and the luggage was checked in her name for that flight. That has been confirmed. In the column saying that Helen did not get on that plane, the flight crew did not recognize her picture when the police showed them. But, I mean, in fairness, They see a lot of people day in and day out, and they were being asked about one passenger weeks after the fact. More interesting to me was that the suitcase Helen brought to Minnesota was not found in two searches of the house. No one had any explanation for where the suitcase went. Now, that just means that possibly she didn't make it from the airport to her house, but let's consider what Helen told that shopkeeper. She said she was in a rush because her houseman was waiting on her, and this clerk was sure that Helen said houseman because she had never heard the word before, didn't know exactly what it meant, but assumed it meant something like a butler. She repeated the word to herself a few times so she could remember it and look up the meaning later. And we know Jack Matlick was the only person Helen called her houseman. So let's say you are rushing to get to the airport. Do you say, I'm in a hurry because I have to catch a flight? Or do you say you're in a hurry because the person picking you up 
at the airport later that day is waiting. You say you have to catch the flight. So unless Helen was trying to flex on the shopkeeper for some reason by mentioning having a houseman, this doesn't make sense. Helen would have said, I'm in a hurry, I'm late for my flight. It sounds like Helen expected Jack to pick her up in Minnesota. She did have a return ticket to take the flight, but, you know, maybe plans changed. So they can't prove she ever got on that flight, bottom line. So, okay, let's get to the next issue in Jack's version of events. According to Jack, after Helen got home, she hurt her hand when a trunk shut on it and declined a trip to the ER. But we know Helen was the type to book into the Mayo Clinic for five days for a routine physical exam. Her friends characterized her as someone more likely to overreact and call for an ambulance for an injured hand rather than underreact and just ice it. But I have to admit, this issue with the statement is a little subjective. Let's get into something that is provably false. Jack said the day after Helen arrived home on Friday evening, they argued over a car that Jack sold. The police pulled the records, and Jack hadn't sold the car. He still owned it until May of 1977, two months after he claimed he sold it. And even then, he just transferred the title to his wife. Why did he give some detail about arguing with Helen over selling a car that he didn't actually sell? That's a good question, and I don't have an answer for it. We don't know why Jack told this lie, just that he did. The other point in Jack's story was that Helen stayed in all weekend except to go to dinner Sunday evening with a mystery man. So from Thursday at 5 p.m. until Monday morning, Helen was home, according to Jack. But on Friday, when Helen's friend Joan dropped in for coffee, she barely made it out of her car before a man came out to the driveway. Joan told the man she was there to see Helen, and this man, who she had never seen before, said that Helen wasn't home, and he offered to go get Jack. But then another man, who was not Jack, came out as well, and he said Helen was actually still in Minnesota and was expected back the following week. As they were talking, Joan heard loud noises from inside the house, and one of the men said they were doing a small remodeling project in there. So that clearly doesn't line up with Jack's claims that Helen was home all weekend, and neither do the phone records. Helen was a phone person. Some people said she practically lived on the phone chatting with friends. But none of the outgoing calls from the house that weekend were to Helen's friends. One call was to a department store, to order a meat grinder attachment for a blender. And it happened to be a rush order, and Jack Matlick admitted that he was the one who placed the order. So you can only imagine how that information played out in the media. It definitely looked grim and kind of gory. But some fact-checking on the part of the police showed that the attachment would not have been strong enough to use in disposing of a human body. Not saying Jack knew that at the time he ordered it, but also not saying that that's why he ordered it. It was just an odd thing to suddenly need to order. 
Another outgoing call was to Everett Moore, Helen's financial person, but it appears he didn't answer. There was a call to a doctor who had treated Frank Brock previously, but it had been about seven years since Frank's death, and Helen hadn't spoken to the doctor since Frank died. It's unclear who called or why, since the doctor wasn't home and the person who called declined to leave a message. And the last call that's been made public was to a cleaning and decorating service, and Jack made this call. He wanted someone to come over to repaint two rooms and replace a carpet, work that Jack said was approved by Helen. The request was for them to come out as soon as they could, which is the type of request that tends to get filled when the house belongs to one of the wealthiest people in the area. But it does seem odd that Helen would have a rush job on a remodeling project when she was getting ready to leave the state. She wouldn't even be enjoying the fresh paint and carpet for a couple of months. Now, when the workers got there, they did not notice anything strange. It's not like they walked into a blood-covered carpet or anything like that. They did their job as instructed and left. So those are the outgoing calls from the mansion. The incoming calls were mostly Helen's friends calling to talk to her. They all said that Jack answered the phone and gave some reason why Helen couldn't talk. Belton Morris from the American Humane Society was one of those people. Helen was a generous donor, and the two had formed a friendship. Belton said that Jack answered the phone and told him that Helen was on her way to Florida. But Belton called on Sunday morning, the day before Jack said he took Helen to the airport. As for the Sunday evening dinner Jack claimed Helen went to, the police could find no evidence of it. So now we are up to the flight to Florida that Jack said he dropped Helen off for, and nothing in these plans make any sense. For one thing, Helen was not a morning person, so it seemed odd she would want to be to the airport by 7 a.m. for a flight. She did not have a reservation, so she would have been buying the ticket at the counter and could have just picked a later flight like she normally would do. It seemed even stranger after investigators checked the flight schedule and found out that the earliest flight from Chicago to Fort Lauderdale wasn't until 10 a.m., so not only did Helen get up and go earlier than usual, she did it in order to sit for three hours at an airport waiting on a flight. A flight, it appears, she never got on because there is no record of her buying a ticket at the counter. And she didn't call ahead to friends to have them pick her up at the airport when she landed, which would have been her usual routine. Helen flew between Chicago and Fort Lauderdale enough that, yes, she did have a usual routine and she didn't follow any of it. It was also odd that Jack left Helen at the curb because normally he would carry her suitcases through the airport for her. And considering one of her hands was injured, she would have needed his help even more. Jack's response to this was that he dropped her off at the curb because she didn't bring any luggage. Helen, who usually traveled with multiple suitcases, 
and spent all weekend prepping things to bring with her to Florida, left without taking anything. A check of Helen's bank record showed that her last transaction on her cards was the charge from the boutique near the Mayo Clinic. And the last things on her regular bank account were $15 in checks totaling over $13,000. They were all cashed after Helen was last seen. Jack said that these were the checks that had been filled out when she got back home before she left again. Two of the checks were made out to Jack directly, one for $3,000 and the other for $2,000. The third was made out to cash, and that was for $1,000. Jack cashed that one as well. So Jack got $6,000 of the $13,000 in checks that the police could prove. He was actually suspected of benefiting indirectly from the others the police had the bank pull Helen Brock's signature card that they had on file and compare it to the checks. It didn't match. Not even close. More than that, the bank had a record of Helen's safe deposit box being accessed on February 21st, the day she supposedly flew to Florida, and the person accessing the box was Jack Matlick. The investigators went back to Jack with questions about this money. Jack claimed that Helen did sign the checks. It only looked different because her hand was injured. He said that the $1,000 was his usual pay, the $3,000 was a belated Christmas bonus, and the $2,000 was so that he could pay off a car, not the car she had already given to him, but some other car. So Helen's supposedly angry he sold one car that he actually didn't sell, but then gave him more money to pay off another car. Somehow that's supposed to make sense. As for the safe deposit box, Jack said that Helen had left him some jewelry to put in there while she was away in Florida, and because there was no inventory list related to what was in the box, the police had no way to confirm this. The investigators took a handwriting sample from Jack and had an expert look the checks over. He concluded that Jack did not sign the checks himself. The expert also said it was not possible that Helen signed the checks with an injured hand. The differences in the writing just could not be explained away so easily. Someone else, someone who was not Jack and was not Helen, signed those checks. And we know from Helen's friend Joan that two other men were at the house that weekend, two men who have never been identified. Maybe one of them signed them. Jack was looking pretty suspicious, to say the least, and the investigators were treating this as foul play. But there was a huge question mark in relation to Jack. What was his motive? They couldn't find one. He and Helen did not have a ridiculously contentious relationship. He was compensated for his work. It's not like he felt he was being cheated. The investigators did wonder if Jack was in Helen's will, but even if he was, Where was Helen's body to prove death so that he could collect? We talked about that in the Cheryl Pearson case. Killing someone and hiding their body so no one finds them is a horrible way to collect an inheritance because then you have to wait seven years. But the police did try to get the will to pursue this lead and see who would benefit from Helen's death. But Helen's lawyer refused to turn it over. 
He said until there was proof Helen was dead, he couldn't produce her will. The state took this to court, and a judge ordered the attorney to show it, and he still refused. He was held in contempt. The judge ordered him to pay a $1,000 fine and serve 10 days in jail, and the attorney still refused. Now, when this didn't motivate him and they knew they weren't going to get anywhere, the judge did withdraw the jail sentence but still imposed the fine. So authorities didn't even know if Jack was in the will and they had no way of knowing. But if Jack wasn't involved, why would he lie about Helen being home that weekend and about dropping her off at the airport? Because let's face it, that was a lie. We're not going to play the I see both sides here. Jack Matlick lied about what happened that weekend. If Helen made it home from Minnesota at all, it wasn't for long. There was no way she was there until Monday morning. The investigators came to believe Helen never got on her flight after the Mayo Clinic. There was some change in plans, and she was being picked up, which is why she told the woman at the store that her houseman was waiting for her. Maybe it was Jack in the car. Maybe it was just a ruse to get her to step into a car that someone else was driving. And then the cover-up began and possibly included someone flying in Helen's place to make it look like her ticket was used. I personally think it is just as likely that she did fly back from the Mayo Clinic, and whatever happened occurred the night she returned, likely when she was picked up at the airport. I think either one of these scenarios is possible. Maybe Jack was in on it from the start, or maybe he was too afraid of the people who did do something to Helen Brock, and he was lying for them to also protect himself from them. Jack did take two polygraphs. Some sources say he failed them. Others say the results were inconclusive. But Jack wasn't the only person under this cloud of suspicion. Richard Bailey was as well. So basically, we have two true crime tropes fighting for dominance. The butler did it, or the boyfriend did it. Now, Richard was a con man, to be sure. But as far as I can tell, he has not been directly tied to any other person who was murdered or disappeared. But his friends were. One of them was Silas Jane, who was, at the time Helen went missing, serving a prison sentence for conspiracy to murder his own brother, George. The motive for these horse people, as I will refer to them, is significant. Helen had caught on to being scammed. She had brought in a third party to start doing appraisals, proving that Richard and or the people he worked with had conned her and tried to continue the con. And according to one friend, she was considering going to the state's attorney about it between her trip from the Mayo and her flight to Florida. And Helen Brock, no matter how much money she had, wasn't going to take being scammed lying down. So remember how I mentioned she was moving out of a penthouse that she rented for many years and moving into a condo she had purchased? She did that over a $100 rent increase. She was worth around $30 million, conservatively $30 million. But she thought a $100 a month rent increase wasn't fair. So she moved out basically in protest. 
It even strained her friendship with the owners of the rental. The money she lost in the horse scam was not $100 a month. It was upper five figures and quite possibly into the six-figure range. Helen was on the brink of going to the authorities about this scheme, and that is exactly when she disappeared. It seems unlikely that was a coincidence. But that is all we're going to get into for today. Watch for part two in the next couple of days, where we're going to go over the rest of the investigation that lasted roughly 15 years and it ended in a touch of maybe sort of justice question mark for Helen Brock. <laughs> 